Hello, and welcome to OpenLab, an interaction design podcast from OpenLab at Newcastle University. This is our second episode, and today we'll be focusing on digital inclusion. A recent study by the Society for Innovation, Technology and Modernization found that four in ten local council homepages failed to meet basic tests for accessibility. When our institutions are unable to pass basic accessibility tests, what does that mean for digital inclusion? Currently, there is an expectation for those who are digitally excluded to upskill or find platforms that work for them. But what happens when we flip that and ask designers to work harder to implement digital accessibility throughout everything that they do? Today we're talking with three guests who all bring various expertise from technology, digital inclusion work and accessibility. Yeah, so first of all, I'd just like you to sort of introduce yourself and sort of talk about the work that you've done in this area. Yeah, hi. So um, I'm Adam Hill. I'm Continuous Improvement Lead at Sunderland Software City, um, but I'm also leading on the Tech for Good uh, Northeast program, uh, initiative um, in partnership with uh, with Vaughn. Um, and I also founded No Code Northeast User Group in the Northeast, so for software development. Um, and my background is that I led a, a digital agency for, for around 15 years, uh, based in Sunderland, but working across across the world, actually. Um, <clears throat> and we, uh, yeah, we, we were very um, conscious of, of accessibility, but uh, as I'm sure we'll explore, uh, didn't, didn't do anywhere near enough. But uh, yeah, so I worked in a digital agency for, for 15 years. Awesome. Thank you. And Richard? Yeah, I am Richard Boggy, and um, my current role is uh, Senior um, Health Partnerships Manager at Vaughan. I also work in kind of in um, conjunction with NHS partners, social care partners, um, the voluntary sector to try and primarily about um, reducing health inequalities, um, so getting better access, better experiences and better outcomes. Um, for people um, and because digital services is such an important part of that it's kind of a key part of, of my work previous to that I was at Difference Northeast where I was um, involved in campaigning on um, issues around equality and access for disabled people and again kind of digital inclusion and access was a key part of that it was part of the um, Better Connected campaign group in this region. Um, and I guess I might be referred to as an expert by experience. I don't consider myself an expert, but I do have some personal experience that I've been blind. I'm a user of assistive technology. And so access is something very close to my heart. Great. Thank you. And Adam? Hello, I'm Adam Parnaby, the other Adam. Uh, I'm a PhD student here at OpenLab, and my research uh, centers around issues of digital access, digital inclusion and exclusion, uh, particularly what I tend to do um, is aim to design tools to support community digital inclusion work. Great. Thanks. Um, so I guess, Adam, just sort of touching on that, um, the sort of different perspectives around um, digital inclusion. Um, why is it so important uh, to design for system change rather than putting the onus on excluded people to do the work? Uh, well, um, there's there's a lot to kind of unpack there, but in brief, um, when we're thinking about digital inclusion, sometimes people talk about um, 
a digital divide, like a gap between people who can access things and people who can't access things. I'm not the biggest fan of that metaphor. I think it skates over some nuance. But um, the problem that you get into is that a lot of access work that gets done tends to put the onus on the individual, as you said. So it tends to be things like um, skills, courses. It tends to be th- there's it tends to be this idea of upskilling people, making them trek out to a community center where they can get access to a device, get access to Wi-Fi, and then laboriously learn how to engage with services that are being delivered digitally, whether that's um, just the kind of private services that a lot of people might take for granted, things like online shopping or what have you, or whether that's state-offered services, things like universal credit, things like um, things like healthcare information. Um, and it's, a, put simply and put bluntly, it's a lot of work that is often foisted on people who have a lot going on in their lives and could do without the extra burden. Um, that, that work is important if somebody wants to become better able to use these complex digital services then having a place where they can do that and having um having a pathway to gain those skills is important and valuable i absolutely in no way want to detract from that um but there is another angle to this if if people aren't at the barrier to entry you can improve their capacity to jump over the barrier or you can reduce the height of the barrier and the reality is that a lot of these systems are just quite complex or they're not designed with people with particular access needs in mind or they're not designed with people with less experience with digital tools in mind Um, and as a result of that there is a lot of work that needs to happen that sort of rolls down to the most vulnerable people in the equation when we could be questioning design cultures, we could be questioning minimalist design patterns that can be confusing for new users, things like that. Yeah, I would I would totally agree. I think um, it's, it's too often left to the kind of end user to, um, uh, to, to upskill or to, to, to um, do the work to to help people out and and a lot of people are willing to do that i'm willing to do i've done it a lot of times myself but you get to the point where you just well you design it properly then i wouldn't have to do this and um and you know as an example just this week i i I got a request for you know tips and advice on making meetings and meeting documents accessible um from somewhere within uh the nhs and well, I started thinking, well, yeah, I could give you some, but it would take a long time because there's so much to cover. Um, or you could kind of go and find it or you could actually um, go back to your managers and say, like, we need to get this access issue sorted out because, you know, I'm, 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 it's not my job to do that. Um, and if we don't start pushing back and, and getting... Uh, systems to change and and them to take access more seriously then they're just going to keep coming to us and asking us to help them out so I think it's just not the right way around they need to start making it more something that they measure and manage and you know there's there's 
bags and bags of guidance out there, particularly in the NHS, um, for how to do this. It's just they don't do it. They just don't um, follow that guidance. They don't look at it. They don't manage it. They don't measure it. It's not part of their performance targets, and and it should be. I, th- I think just to add to that, I think this a lot of this comes down to as. Adam, you touched on, but it comes down to the design of these of, of these considerations and building access into the design phase of things. It's always seen as an afterthought, and ad- I say always, but you know, a lot of the time it's seen as an, an afterthought, an add-on. I know in, in in the technology space that I was working in, even for for an organisation like ours, which was relatively relatively uh, kind of aware and wanting to 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 build this stuff, it was still very hard to do when you know your competitors and everyone else is doing it as the add-on and therefore you know gets the gets the gets the 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 run on you as it were so it's 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 something that therefore needs systemic change it needs to be something that is embedded into service providers embedded into people who create digital and technology tools um uh, uh, the people who teach those people how to create those tools Uh, otherwise it's always going to just be this 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 add-on, this thing we do afterwards. It's kind of, I've built this thing. Now, how do I make it accessible? Instead of, we're building this thing, how do we make it accessible? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you sort of think about the landscape of digital inclusion, what, how, what does it look like and um, how could it be improved? Well, um, I can, I can certainly, uh, one thing I can, I can certainly speak to is the, what it looks like in, um, education. Um, Adam was just talking about the the people who teach people how to build digital services. Um, I definitely see the slow march of improvement in in the way that accessibility is taught, um, but there's definitely problems where it's kind of accessibility is often an afterthought in course design. That's true of um, university level computing education. I dare say that's true of um, earlier stage education as well. It's true of boot camp programs and things like that. Um, it's it's the thing that happens in the last session when, um, with the best will in the world, even the most engaged undergraduate student sort of just wants everything to be over. The coursework assignment is already out and they haven't been taught about accessibility yet, so accessibility isn't assessed. Um, as just as a consequence of the ordering of things, um, where ideally it was something that should be, as as we all say, and even in those courses that are tapped on at the end, we have people saying that accessibility needs to be a consideration from the get-go. So my question is, why is that not always the case in course design as well? Um, people need to be ultimately supported to be able to create accessible stuff to be able to design and produce accessible things um and often it's just a, a question of the resources that are out there but um people aren't taught to prioritize it people aren't taught to go looking for those resources richard was, was talking about the, the the nhs and central government have some fantastic resources and some fantastic guidelines for designing accessible content um, that are underutilized outside of those places. 
even inside <laughs> and, and even inside I, I mean I think if, if we look at it, I think this question sort of fits to some of what we've already said but it just as Adam was saying earlier on I think when we look at what digital inclusion looks like currently pretty much any everywhere you go you get these kind of three pillars right of, of uh, connectivity um, devices and skills and, 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 and these are seen as kind of the three uh, clear pillars of, of of how we can make uh, 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 how we can solve the problem of digital exclusion, and I think um, <clears throat> talking to Adam a, a lot, and this was something again from my pre- previous experience I was aware of already, but talking to Adam a lot, also reading uh, uh, the IPPR North report around digital exclusion in the Northeast, really highlight this fourth pillar, which is about inclusive design, and I think in terms of looking at what it should look like, I think everywhere that we're reading and looking about digital inclusion of these three, the, these three areas should become four. It needs to be embedded in the work that's happening across across digital inclusion. But wider than that, I think it therefore those it's one of the few that actually can be embedded across it you know it doesn't require it requires extra thought. It requires changing the way you work. It requires thinking differently. But it doesn't require lots of funding. Do you know what I mean? It's something that, that that actually, as we've just talked about, there's lots of resources out there. There's lots of good stuff that's being done already. Um, it just needs to rise up the agenda, and it needs to be it needs to be understood not just as a as a digital inclusion point, but from a business perspective, for example, as a as a as a financial point. You know, this is, these are people who have access needs are um, a, a huge proportion. Um, uh, of the people who are visiting websites and visiting uh, uh, digital digital um, uh, digital services, so so it's not just a case of of kind of digital inclusion to 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 ensure this. It's it's a it's also got a, a you know like any kind of inclusion, it, there's a business need there as well. Yeah, and in in the sort of health settings, it's it's you know it's part of the answer for um, better equality and, and outcomes yeah. and, and that if you continue to design for the majority and and you and you leave out those marginalized groups then you you just build in further inequity in the system um if people can't access information or they can't understand a website they fall further behind um uh um i think as you as you know I do a bit of um spoken word and i um one of the the poems I do about this binary situation is it how we people design I think for this kind of bell shaped curve and like attend to the the kind of majority in the middle but it's the edges where we we kind of forget about they're seen as hard to reach or too difficult um, and they get get left behind and I think it's what the kind of the challenge is to try and push those boundaries back so that more of that curve gets included in the initial design um, rather than leaving it till the end. Yeah, there's there's something I want to uh, add on to that quickly as well, which is that even when these things are considered and someone is meeting all of the all of the guidelines that they are obligated to meet, often from from a user experience perspective, those things still end up at the margins of people's design considerations. So yes, your software can technically be used with a screen reader, but is it as pleasant an experience Mm. to use it with the screen reader as it is to to use it without? 
um, things like that. Um, there's um, a uh, a concept called a disability dongle from, I believe, Liz Jackson, um, which I find quite useful in discussing these things. This idea of something that is, yes, technically something that improves access, but it's it's this compartmentalized piece of design that isn't mm. particularly sustainable, isn't particularly reusable, is just this kind of tacked on extra thing that then isn't given any consideration beyond the bare minimum. Uh, ultimately, if we think about UX designers, the role of a UX designer is not to make something that just works, it's to make something that's pleasant to use. And I think often when we talk about um, when we talk about inclusion, when we talk about access, people get as far as the sort of first way of functionality argument and then leave things there and worry about uh, worry about making something nice and pleasant to use only for those people in the middle of that bell curve. Yeah, and and to Adam's point, the uh, for me as a user, you know, I get kind of halfway through a crap form and and i just run out of energy i was like why should i continue to sign up for this service or attend this seminar or whatever it is if you can't make the form easy to use you know it's like i just give up there's i think there's stats around something like 70 percent of people would if they can't use something will will move away from it within a minute kind of thing mm. 97 percent just for this anecdotal one but 97 percent on web aim of websites online in 2021 had accessibility problems. You know, mm-hmm. this this is this is the scale of this problem. You know, but I think I just I just add into that. I think digital inclusion is is generally, I don't think I'm wrong to say this is generally seen as something that that that's sort of the voluntary sector's problem to solve, or inside of institutions that then maybe it's the digital inclusion officers' problem to solve. For example. Mm. Rather than rather than it becoming a facilitation point, if you look at the voluntary sector, and it's a big reason um, that that we set up Text for Good Northeast is that from a voluntary sector perspective, there isn't the digital capacity in that sector to be able to mm. then pass on the understanding of how you can do inclusive. Uh, you know, it's just not there, um, so it's unfair to, for that for that to be. The, and I think I'm using those two examples as as to highlight that this is about the fact that it needs to become everyone's challenge to solve in terms of the, the the inaccessibility of their services it has to be something that is embedded across every part of an organization and understanding that everyone has uh who is involved in the development the design and the delivery of, of services i think it's 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 crucial yeah and it and it really showed up i think with the pandemic didn't it because all of a sudden we're all jumping on the online platforms yeah. and 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 very little thought had gone into actually how accessible are they? Exactly. Are they? Can we use them? Um, you, you know, you're just kind of grateful to get into a meeting, let alone work out the accessibility of them. Yeah. Um, I mean, closed captioning, I think, has only just been mm. come on as default in Zoom in the mm. last few weeks, right? And so, you know, before that, it was, it was, it was rare and unheard of. That's all very interesting, um, but I think if I want to take a sort of slightly top-down view and think about um, why it's important to put accessibility at the forefront of design rather than just tack it on at the end. I think we sort of already touched on it before, like it'll sort of turn people away from the service that they're trying to use or if they can't fill in the form, they're just not going to fill it in and then not be able to access the things that they're entitled to access. 
Yeah. I think there's some really practical things. I think if you're going to try and, and design in a kind of universal way, then you have to be thinking of it from the beginning. It has to become a, a habit, a cultural thing that people just do it automatically, you know. So sometimes I show people things, just very basic things on something like Word, like use the accessibility checker or apply headings. Um, very simple things. But people are just like, oh, didn't realise it was there or didn't realise that's why it was important. Um, but once you start using them, then it just becomes habit and mm. and, and you just it just becomes the way that you do things. Yeah. Do you think that's because people don't have that accessibility need, so they just completely ignore it? Or why do you think? Yeah, I just think they, ha- you know, perhaps they haven't been aware of the, the importance of it. Mm. Um they uh, perhaps haven't haven't had training to show them how to use it. Just and you know we're all busy, so you kind of you you tend to take shortcuts, don't you, to mm-hmm. get stuff done. Um, but once they once they're shown that where where it is, and they're they're quite happy to use it and um, and, and build it into the way they do things. I, I think that that also ties into what I was saying earlier on as well. From a, from a say a tech company perspective. To build this in, to build accessibility into the work that you're doing, um, is is kind of cheaper, easier, and and makes a better product at the end of it. You know, it's it's it can be as much a commercial decision as it is a you know because if you're consistently and again saying this as a guilty party in, in in some of the things that we did, if you're building something and then at the end going how do we make this accessible? Number one, you're probably the changes that you make are probably going to harm the what you were trying to do for the the majority users or or change it in some way. So therefore, part of the work you've done over there has, has been for no reason. And and number two, it's 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 things that you're you, you know you're trying to shoehorn something rather than just simply making it accessible. It's yeah. not you know it's it's and and so and that is always harder, right? It's always harder to shoehorn something in, and it's always going to end up in a lesser quality product. So. I think I think from a design perspective, and uh, you know that there's a there's a kind of um, a commercial reason to do it there as well. Um, but also, and but also that 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 yeah that ease that ease of of, of it being built in. It, it a lot of it comes down to just having the people trained from an early perspective. And as uh, exactly as Richard was saying, I think once once that's done, it becomes second. I mean, it beco- it's second nature to me. For example, what Richard said about using headings in a word document, right? I never learned that actually from a, from an accessibility point of view. But when I heard about it, putting a full stop at the end of a, of a of a bullet point, for example, is something that I heard recently. You know, these things become once you hear them, it's like ah, if that's going to happen to make it more accessible, then I can do those things, and it's really easy to embed into what you do, mm. especially if it's something that you're doing day in day out. So uh, yeah, I think there's a I think the other thing that um, if you don't build it in from the beginning is that can become a problem is you then don't budget for mm-hmm. certain things. So you get to the end and say, ah, yeah, it would be nice to do this in an accessible way, but we, we haven't got the budget for yeah. it. So yeah. it doesn't get done. Yeah. And we often used to do that. It would be like the, yeah, there's sort of two days of work that we'd tack on the, on the end. That's how you would budget for it, right? And then actually you, you start doing it and, it, and you realise crikey to actually make this properly accessible it's going to be 10 days of work or something and it's only 10 days of work because of the fact we didn't build it in from the start yeah, it's just it's just the easiest way to do it and if you yeah. end up if you end up not making it a core component um to use an example that i saw relatively recently um i i i will not name the particular website partially because i don't remember exactly which one it was and i don't want to accidentally (laughs) slag anyone off that doesn't deserve it um but um the 
a, a fairly common thing for people to do now is to is to open up their design process in a democratized fashion, by which I mean voting for what features end up uh, being implemented next. And so people will compile a list of their nice to have features and then whichever one gets the most votes, that's the one they'll do next. If accessibility is one of the nice to have features on, on that list, if, if something like say screen reader support, which is the example that I saw um, is on that list, then if you're just doing majority vote, it's never going to be at the top of that list because there aren't enough people who need that specific feature for it to become the the thing that is the priority. And therefore it just keeps getting kicked down the road and kicked down the road and kicked down the road until you become liable for something. It, it Doing it at the start is just the easiest way to do it. And I think the reason that people don't is more to do with a lack of exposure to the issue, a lack of sort of cultural knowledge about why these things are important and how to do them uh, than it is to do with anything else. Like, for example, so I've been talking a lot about um, access as it relates to disability, quite rightly. Um, there are other issues that come up in my research around lack of access to stable Wi-Fi at home, around things like... Um, lack of uh, knowledge of the language that a service is being provided in, things like that. Um, and the thing that was really eye-opening for me as someone who came from a sort of very traditional techie background was volunteering in a community center in a deprived area where people were dealing with these issues, a place where people would come for support to access really critical services, um, things like universal credit. And realizing things like, oh, the security requirements, things like passwords and two-factor authentication, are a massive problem. 80% of what I'm spending my time doing here is helping people to reset passwords. What other things that are part of the, the sort of digital security apparatus have been designed in such a way that they don't account for access needs, that they don't account for um, people who don't have experience of them? And as a result of that, how many people are showing me all of the passwords that they use to run their life in a notebook, me a relative stranger, yeah. because that's the only way that they can manage it. So if you don't if you don't implement these things and design them accessibly from the ground up, as we've been saying, inevitably, all you end up doing is A, providing a less accessible service, and B, when you do try to make it accessible or when you force the individual to make it accessible to them, you compromise what you were designing in the first place. So that's why it needs to be designed from the start. Yeah. <laughs> Groovy. Um, so I think if people are listening to this, then I would hope that they would understand what digital inclusion is and what we mean by accessibility. But for those who don't know what accessibility means, without being overly reductive, what is accessibility and what does it mean? So I have a pet tedious academic definition of this, but I'd like to throw it over to other people <laughs> first to see if they have something slightly more relatable first. I think it probably comes down to kind of just usability. You know, it's it's can can everybody who who needs to access this service or this information, can they do it in a way that doesn't lead to them throwing their laptop out of the window or themselves out of the window um it's just that that yeah it's it's about usability for me and i think there are some useful kind of frameworks um around this which we might come on to things like the the poor 
principles that the um, um, web content, what they called web content accessibility guidelines yeah. have. Um, okay. Yeah, I think they're they're useful. So, um, with that, if it's not too tedious, getting into like perceivability. So you know, can I actually work out what's on the screen? Um, operability. Can I can I move around? Can I use it? Can I fill this form in? Uh, understandability. Is it? Can I work? Can I? Is it too complex? Is it understandable? What's on there? And uh, what's our robustness? You know, can it can it work on different devices on different different screen readers, for example? Um, I think that you know, if we if we use those principles, we'd get a, a long, long way to, to making stuff accessible. Um, yeah, I don't I don't have a huge amount to, to add on to that. I mean, I think accessibility you can see digital accessibility um, <clears throat> in the same way as accessibility on you know, if you, if you want to sort of it's the I think. As I was saying before, in terms of digital inclusion, and, and as Adam mentioned at the start about the kind of digital divide stuff, you know, the, there's this very on-off concept of, again, devices, connectivity, skills. Have you got the skills or have you not? You know, have you got the connection or have you not? Have you got the device or have you not? But accessibility is a bit that comes after that, which is when if you switch all of those three things on, you know, can the people who are accessing this thing access it? And, and there are a lot of barriers. And, and mostly, as we've already touched on, unseen barriers to the people who don't have those accessibility issues right we, you don't see if you can walk up three steps that that not having a ramp there means that certain people can't get access right so it's it's you know i think that to add on to what we've been saying it is important to to i think or i, I can say from my lived experience which is not from the accessibility point of view but trying to implement these things it is comp there is a lot of stuff there that it is complicated and it is something that it is because it's unfortunately so new to, to a lot of people who are designing these services there's work to be done to get to that point right and I think that's part of the reason probably why it's such a challenge to be getting it out there right now but I think yeah really accessibility is it's it's about the idea that that once people have um you know switched on the the the, the bits that say that they've got access to these digital services it's that the accessibility is is how much it responds to the needs of everyone and uh, not just the majority as mm -hmm. we talked about before do you want to include your yes. academic? Yes, my my pet <laughs> so, my my pet definition um, is by uh, Ribot and Palooza, I believe, who are geographers, and they are primarily when they talk about access, they're talking about access to um, natural resources, for example. But I think it's as true here as it is true there. Um, they define access quite simply as the ability to derive benefit from things. And so I think you can frame accessibility as accessibility for a particular individual or a particular group of people. And the to determine whether something is accessible or not, all I would ask is, are people able to derive benefit from this thing, from this service? And what that, um, what that points to, to build on something that Adam was saying, um, is that whereas you get these very binary things like, do you have access to a device? Do you have access to connectivity? Access is a bit more granular than that. And that kind of ties back into something that I was saying about how often when we, when people do do accessibility, they get to the point of you can technically do everything that this service offers if you're willing to try very hard and bash your head against it for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And then they just stop. 
whereas for the um for the user um to to borrow rich's metaphor in the middle of that bell curve um they get a much a much fuller experience they get a much um they get much easier ability to derive that benefit they get maybe more benefits there may be corners of the service that are accessible to them that are not accessible to other people um and so thinking about access in that way i think is quite helpful that it's it's not necessarily just this binary thing it's quite it, it's possible to look at something and say this is accessible but then ask but is it accessible enough mm. could we do more yeah because when you talk about you know deriving a benefit that increasingly those benefits are absolutely essential things you know if you want to find a job if you want to find yeah. a somewhere to live if you want a bank account if you want benefits um you've got to do these things digitally um and sometimes it's bloody hard to do them mm. because that's the way that things have been designed um and so you know to go back to this the health inequalities people um, well, I have to remind people sometimes people will die because of poor design. Mm. Um, we've already got some of the worst health outcomes and inequalities in the country. Um, and if we don't get this kind of thing right, it's going to get worse because digital is becoming a bigger part of the way that health services are provided. You know, um, trying to get a, a doctor's appointment, for example. Um, so those benefits, you know, it's not it's not nice to have. This is now an essential utility, which was part of what we we're doing in in the terms of the Better Connected campaign. Mm. It's trying to re remind people and just highlight the fact that this this is essential, um, and therefore it needs to it needs to go up that priority list to become something that we um, we manage and we prioritize. Otherwise, there will be really bad consequences for people. Yeah, and even to give the to give the cynics argument, um, like the 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 when when people are talking about things like the the curb cut effect and um, des designing for for uh, people who have access needs benefits everyone, I I'm sort of slightly skeptical of that argument on the basis that um, designing for the people who have the access needs should be enough. That should be enough of a reason. But to give the cynics argument, we have a productivity problem in this region and in this country. Um, and when you when you cut access from your list of priorities because you feel like it's it's a cost cutting thing, you're not cutting costs. You're just moving costs and hiding them. There are a tremendous amount of inefficiencies created by having an inaccessible first point of call service that then requires someone to call a phone line, that then requires someone to do a bunch of extra work, that then requires the voluntary sector to pick up a bunch of slack. Um, all of these costs don't magically go away. It's just that society at large is paying them rather than the individual company or whatever that is the service provider. Those costs are still there and that is still ultimately a problem for everyone. There's a great example of this in the art sector. I won't name the um, department that provides funding, but um, <laughs> you, you apply for funding through this particular um, organisation and the first thing, you, you have to use their portal and the first thing you get is kind of an email to tell you 
you know, we realise this is going to be difficult, you know, whoever you are. And you can apply for funding to get someone to help you to make this application. Wow. Um, and it is, it's shocking, you know, even for, for a, a fully sighted person, it's difficult to negotiate. But rather than redesign that system, they just keep paying out money to get people to help you to do it. Which also means, you know, that as an as a artist, it, it takes away from some of your independence. It means you've got to find somebody to do this to help mm. you. It costs them money all the time. Mm. It's just a, a bad way of doing it. Yeah, and I think, I mean, it, it comes back to that systemic change, I think, that if, if this, if, if what we're talking about today is built into to how services are designed, the cost of it essentially goes away. Do you know what I mean? It's it's a, you know, these the, yes, the technology keeps on changing, but the, the, the access requirements don't. You know, you, you once you know, have that knowledge, once you know what, what uh, how to, uh, uh, to design inclusively, then then it's something you can spread into to everything that you do. So it's a, yeah, it's it's rather than trying to tack that on and and and, and break the things you've already created to to to, to make them, yeah, or, or the maddest uh, example that you've just given there, Richard, of designing a service to support the service in order to make it accessible. I mean, you know, it, it, it's just it's just they're all consequences of at the outset bad design mm-hmm. that's that's it i mean inaccessible design is bad design yeah once you notice it you start seeing it everywhere yeah and you will never sleep soundly again <laughs> <laughs> um so i think it's important that we maybe shift the sort of tone and talk about places and people and companies that are doing it right um so if you've got any examples you can share of like... I feel like that's kind of stop whinging. Like this. <laughs> <laughs> Although it's important, like it is, yeah. it is. in terms of like what we want designers to consider yeah. or yeah. instead of it just being sort of tacked on to the design course Absolutely. Sort of from the ground up. Like what do we you know, we've got an opportunity here in a platform yeah. to tell Absolutely. people what we actually want. So what do what I do mean, you want? I think um I think some of the um government uh, websites are actually really, really good. Mm-hmm. You know, they apply their own kind of standards, they're really simple really um well structured accessible um i think there's some 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 great examples on there um i think some of the uh commercial businesses where they really uh, think about customer needs are good you know like supermarkets generally that find their apps and things really um quite accessible because they know that if they don't they won't get the business mm-hmm. um um Often, um, previously, uh, probably less so on the digital, but you know, good examples are those exam those businesses that really attend to customer service, like the sort of hotel sector, always really good on on um, disability access. Um, you know, nothing with too much trouble generally because they want your business. Mm-hmm. Um, but on, so the, yeah, I think there are good examples that can be followed out there i think on that the government wanted to really i mean i i always pick up the fact that i think part part of the that what i think government have brought in particularly in terms of the digital services 
um, and I think I could be wrong in saying this. I don't know it scientifically, but but my my belief is that there's a new role that's come out in in from government that's now started to be rolling out across um, across other spaces, which is content designer. So it's it's around being able to actually think about how content is being uh, displayed, how content is being uh, uh, taken. So in terms of form design, that kind of thing, and those people have you know accessibility built in because obviously it's you know everyone's got to access that content mm. but i think the government stuff's really interesting because of the fact that every single talk that i've seen in the northeast for example on accessibility in tech has come from the fact we've got dwp and hmrc or had different it's moving mm. around but um up here and there's some amazing experts in that space who who just happen to be brilliant at giving talks as well and and make that really a, but when you add into that the fact that the government has, in the most part, made all of the stuff they've learned. If we go back 10 years, I've got to remember, I remember going to one talk where um, someone from, from government digital services was bringing all the equipment that they used to test this stuff out. And it cost tens of thousands of pounds. Do you know what I mean? There's no, every agency couldn't go out and do that. Every self-employed designer couldn't go out and, and buy that equipment. But they saw the value in the fact that what they were doing when they tested, when they, when they worked out how these, you know, how people reacted to different form elements or how they put all of that into open documentation that is now available for anyone to go and use. And I think yeah. that that government that government um, documentation, you know, kudos. And, and I think the UK government is internationally respected for this. You know, that a lot of that documentation is 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 the right way to go and can be a really good starting point for. Um, for agencies. The other uh, one I wanted to put in, because uh, again, rather than singling out individual companies or organisations, but there's an organisation called Hassle Inclusion. I think there's others similar to that that Adam might, might have a few others, but of places you can go where they are doing this stuff really well and they're talking about how to do it and helping people mm -hmm. to do it. And they have free webinars, free courses, free, you know, so, um, uh, but can also, from an agency perspective, actually come in and look at, you know, building out the accessibility across the organization rather than just those individual webinars and things so i think um uh, 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 there are lots of people there's definitely agencies especially in the tech for good space who are also doing really great accessible uh, sites but they're not generally going to be the the agencies that the the, the, the yeah. big commercial companies mm -hmm. go to they'll be the agencies that the, the the voluntary sector organizations who are understanding their need to do this go and again just highlighting not to get negative but just to highlight the systemic nature of this um that even where it's being being done well it tends to be um sort of fringe cases rather than yeah, yeah. um i i do uh, also want to add add on to to the list of people who are praising um central government's design patterns i think if you are designing a digital service and you're kind of taking that as given as read then um the you could do much 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 worse than the design standards that um, central government use for their web services but there there's there's a there's a broader question about digital inclusion which is what what even is is the the objective mm -hmm. if you like and when i talk to people about this in my research what it seems to come down to after a very long debate is giving people an informed choice as to whether they want to use a digital service or not uh, and that means that there's a kind of necessary corollary to all of this which is that sometimes digital inclusion is keeping your phone line open and well staffed mm -hmm. um yeah. and uh that that part often gets left by the wayside so i think about like the the design justice movement talks about a world in which in which many worlds fit 
and it's very easy to take as read that digital is the way to go and digital is new and new thing is more good and more good is more new um but ultimately there are going to be some people who for perfectly valid reasons don't want to do things digitally and i think the the area where the area where things are kind of really underexplored is having those digital and those non-digital things sit side by side and allowing these to be different tools for different purposes at different times and places in people's lives. Um, and so the, the government design guidelines for the web services are absolutely fantastic. Um, the kind of support services that I think for the foreseeable future will need to exist on the peripheries of digital services, things like your phone lines, your postal services. Those things, I can't think of anyone that really does them as well as they could or has put as much effort into the UX of those as they've put into web services recently. Um, but if anyone does do that, then... Um, you deserve all the praise in the world for that, I think. Yeah, I think one organisation that comes to mind is is maybe um, Motability, um, mm -hmm. where I, I, I find them incredibly helpful and easy to access. And um, rather than hiding their phone number, which a lot of organisations do, so they don't want you to ring them, you know, it's very upfront. And, um, and unlike other organisations, they kind of, it feels like they're actually there to help you rather than yes um avoid <laughs> get you through the script as quickly as possible yeah, yeah. Yeah. it's a bit like a cashless world right and the problems that would create i mean i think the the you know digital inclusion as you say adam cannot be about digital we, we, we it's, it's not a digital very enforcement yeah it's very dangerous world to digital first i think makes sense digital only or you know just to ha only have digital services in almost every case is 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 exclusive by default right i mean it, it just you know at, at least until everything can be <laughs> inclusive until you can prove your digital service can be accessed by everyone which uh, it's a physical impossibility right now right i just think if we uh, just want to add if we're talking about the digital inclusion in general <clears throat> um uh, outside of this sort of accessibility aspect of it that we're focusing on on today i mean i think there are there are a lot of organizations both in the northeast and nationally who are doing a lot of really good work yeah, in this mm -hmm. um good things foundation always comes to mind in terms of, of what they're doing around the the sort of traditional areas i mentioned before so devices connectivity and uh, and and skills um they have a uh, national network of, of organizations that they provide those services through in the voluntary sector so mm -hmm. um you can go on their website and, and if you are looking for either of those three things you can go and access them from local voluntary organizations in your area um, and i think as a as a as a um how would i say uh, as a infrastructure that's that's uh, uh, you know um very powerful and, and and is 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 helping a lot of people um, but they don't specifically deal with any of the things that around the accessibility side things that we've been talking about today and I think that's a 
Um, the other the other thing I'd just like to mention on digital inclusion in terms of people who it's a, bit, a little bit left field because it's not quite all right on about, but I want to highlight a report that me and Adam have talked about a lot, which was done by the IPPR around digital inclusion in the Northeast. Um, I think it's from September 2021. Uh, it can be found on their website. But uh, I think for anyone who's interested in this, it highlights a lot of the good work that's going on in the Northeast, but it also really talks uh, talks really well about everything that we've been discussing today, but particularly around the nuance, uh, you know, around digital divide and the fact that it's not a black or white, in, uh, uh, sorry, a, uh, mm. uh, an in or out inclusion, um, but also talks a lot about inclusive design and how important it is to bring into the conversation. Um, but uh, but it does highlight a lot of the, the the good stuff that is going on. But I think there's, you know, from a from an inclusive design perspective, even even in terms of just to bring us back to the negative, you know. But 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 even in terms of the, um, I'm going to turn it back to positive in a minute. Yeah, great, <laughs> good good man, good man. We'll see, we'll do the, the the devil and the and the and the yeah angel. Um, even even at the uh, with all the good work that is going on, and we have to recognise that, uh, that there's tons of good work going on. This is such an extensive problem that that it's you're talking about micros, you know, sort of drop drops in the ocean kind of thing in terms of of the systemic change that needs to happen. So I think we should highlight all the great things, but um, but but always come back to the fact that 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 the fact that we have to kind of look around to highlight the things of it just shows how big a problem this is. Mm. Sorry, go on. No, I'm bring just, it back to the I was going to say that. Although there are a lot of problems, there's also a huge amount of progress that's yeah. been made. And Absolutely. for me, as a uh, somebody with particular kind of access needs and communication needs, when I think about what I can do on my phone or on my laptop, it, it, it kind of blows my mind, you know, mm. in terms of access to information, access to whether it's music, whether it's TV, whether it's... Um, services it's just there is it it is and it is because it it can be such an enabler which is what makes it even more frustrating if it doesn't work because of access issues because it can enhance people's lives in such a way mm. um that it's it just becomes it, it's like unlocking that or, or removing that barrier or unlocking that kind of i think of it as almost like a gateway to a more equal world and when that gateway is locked because of a design issue or your phone dies oh yeah yeah <laughs> yeah or your internet falls down whatever yeah. it's so frustrating because you know that that and in, in all sorts of settings in terms you know in terms of people's health in terms of their, their finances their opportunities just that or their, their leisure time you know being able to access um, deals, um, all sorts of things are made better by digital services, but they have to be well designed. Otherwise, is it, it comes back to that majority getting access to those deals and that better health, and, and those jobs and the and the nice accommodation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And and the people on the edges get left behind. Oh, I was doing really positive then, and I brought it back to. <laughs> I've got Richard. I've got a question. Maybe not a question for you, but an an observation that you can mm. shoot me down on, or, or from your lived experience. But there's a few I mentioned before about you know companies not having access to these tens of thousand pounds of equipment, and in the past, obviously, to have access to digital, people did need to invest a lot more money. The technology has 
so there's been the enabling technology such as an iPhone, for example, mm. and the focus that Apple have put into accessibility. Yeah. Is there is there a possibility that there's an element of 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 the solution being part of the problem in the fact that actually what Apple has done is somewhat to give you to give people access to things allowed people in the design of the other things that they do the 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 opportunity to to not focus on these things do you know what i mean it's almost the right. the, the, the the all of the uh, investments gone into the technology that will solve the problems rather than the problem itself maybe i've not thought of that particular point and to before. be fair i hadn't really thought about it yeah. just now <laughs> so i'll not sidetrack the conversation um, too heavily but i think it's an interesting yeah and I have to say, I think, you know, we, we talk about um, good examples. I think Apple and, and lastly, maybe Microsoft have to be kind of applauded as well in yeah. terms of the, the progress that they've made. Just in terms of making accessibility mainstream, you know, building it into phones. I'm, You know, it's not that long ago. I got a Nokia and had to send it away to have some crappy software installed exactly. onto yeah. it. Um, and now it's just there. Yeah. And... Um, that's that's amazing, and I think this is a is a good point for other organisations to learn from as well. Is to make stuff available, you know, for 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 your for your staff. Don't expect them to go to occupational health and pass some sort of test so that they can use a screen reader. Yeah. Just just make it available, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, good organisations are doing that. You know, they're putting on um, things that might help people uh, with dyslexia. You know. Um, let people access stuff that helps them rather than feeling they have to declare the, the, the need for it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so if somebody was listening to this podcast and they thought, um, you know, I work in an organisation and I want to push for some system change within digital or like make things more accessible and, you know, work within digital inclusion, what can they do? Wow. <laughs> that wasn't on the list of questions. <laughs> ultimately, ultimately, I think it's as we've been saying, it's a it's a systemic issue, and it's it's kind of about culture. So the a, a, a sort of not necessarily an easy thing to do, but a simple thing to do is just be that voice in the room, agitating to make sure that people remember that this is an issue yeah. and do what you can to to build that awareness, build that knowledge. Um, as, as I say, like, um, uh, as somebody who was um, at the time, am no longer, but was at the time um, a, um, uh, a person without any particular issues relating to disability or chronic illness who had come from a traditional techie background and just hadn't given this stuff a lot of thought um going and uh doing some uh volunteering and engagement in uh, a community center where people were coming for support with day-to-day problems was a real eye-opener and fundamentally changed and i think improved my practice um uh, now I, I am someone who has a lot more um, lived experience with regard to with regard to chronic illness and having access needs of my own. Um, but at the time, um, that was a real that was a real kind of watershed moment for me. And I think it's it's encouraging people to look beyond the sort of um, sleek minimalist silicon valley idea of what technology development is and what service design should look like Mm -hmm. and get some exposure to you know how how 
a greater diversity of people are actually living their day-to-day -day lives and actually using the things that you're building. Um, like if you can convince some people to actually take advantage of whatever corporate social responsibility program exists and whatever volunteering hours you get in your in your tech sector job and go and do some of that stuff and actually get that get that exposure that will actually improve your practice as opposed to um uh just kind of feeling like it's tacked on yeah. i think ultimately it does have to come down to culture and really having that internalized understanding of what the issues are and I think, um, so yeah, I think there's a role for people to be allies. I think this is all part of, I'm not going to get too heavy, but this is all part of an ableist society that mm -hmm. kind of ignores the needs of people. So yeah. if you don't agree with that and you don't go want to go along with that, then you have to speak up and you have to challenge it and not leave it to the people who are struggling with the issues, mm -hmm. which often happens. Um, so the, the, there's that. And I think there's also the role of, of leadership in organizations who have to put this up on the uh, priority of strategic issues that need to be managed and reported on so for example i've worked in large organizations that have an audit department i don't think i might be wrong and um, they might do it now but i don't think they would have audited on accessibility and these are you know people have a right to this stuff you know um enshrined in law um but the, this is it this comes back to an issue of, of human rights um to be treated the same and to i get to access the same information and services um so it should be something that organizations are managing and it should be something that le leadership teams unfortunately of course because of low participation and representation there won't be many disabled people or people with communication needs on those leadership teams but they need to be putting it on the agenda they need to be managing it they need to be reporting it to their boards of trustees um and i think only in that way will you see kind of that culture change through the through organizations mm -hmm. yeah i think i think there's also i mean i think i think it has to start in it's a system change thing so you know <laughs> Uh, it's not it's not going to be easy, but I think we're going to talk about policy a bit later on. I think that's it's part of it, but it's also um, uh, policy is the sort of national level or international even in some cases. But um, but I think it's got to start um, maybe reflecting on what what Adam was saying and a bit of what Richard was just saying. But it's got to start internally. So in terms of organisations. It's got to come from leadership, and it's got to it's got to be looking inwards first. I think I think it's about um, looking at what you as an organisation can do. Then, if 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 you're in that digital space, if you're providing digital services, then it's starting to look outwards in terms of how you can change that. I I, I think that the the um, the tech sector, to, to generalise it very wholly, has a massive responsibility within this. And I, and I don't think it's, you know, just about bringing it down to... It's where I hope, as Southern Software City, as Tech for Good Northeast, that we can be supporting that uh, that idea. But, you know, the service, a lot of the service design in digital inclusion that we're talking about at this moment in time is, is, is developed by companies in the UK that can change the way in which they're doing things. And a lot, as we talked about before, there's a lot of them that are... 
Um, but I think because a lot of the technical side of making things inclusive is completely not understood by a lot of the people providing the services, it's the technology company's responsibility to to understand that and be able to build that into to what's happening. Because if it's done there, you know, inclusivity will be built into all digital services that are that are provided, right? So there's a and, and I think even on that, it's a case of universities need to be doing the same thing in terms of the courses that they're providing. Um, uh, any course providers online, you know, non-formal education, whatever, all need to be taking uh, taking this on as a as, as a priority. So it's not just about the organisation providing the services, but I think there's some ingrained infrastructural stuff that mm. the different organisations can and should be doing to to, to help uh, contribute to the to the challenge. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what networks or um, channels can people use uh, to talk about this kind of work or to make change for the, make change themselves? All of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's uh, like if we're if we're talking about system change, if we're talking about culture change, then. Um, this isn't necessarily something that I think is necessarily productive to constrain to a narrow channel or a or a particular or a particular way of talking. It needs it needs to be every conversation. It needs to be every meeting. It needs to be um, something that comes from that comes from leadership that is that is systemic. Um, and broadly, it needs to be something that people are unwilling to shut up about until it gets better. I I, I think. Yeah, I, I think there's there's a again maybe where we, we where we can bring or I, I'm gonna bring in <laughs> the policy point. Mm-hmm. I think there's 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 leg- as Richard already mentioned already there is legislation that is there already that should mean that we're all better at this, right? That it's already there. It already says that people have a human right and people have a, a national you know legal rights in the UK to access services, right? That people provide that it's there. The challenge is that my my and we, you know, I know we talked a bit about this previously uh, as a group, but my my feeling is that GDPR is a really good kind of mirror to look into to an extent in terms of of how that created a scenario exactly as Adam was just talking about, where everyone was talking about it, not always positively, not always in the, in the best possible way, but it was it it, it created systemic mm. change and. I'm not a big fan of having to, you know, use a sledgehammer for a tiny nail, but um, this is not a tiny nail. This is a massive systemic problem. And I think there's a big part of uh, of this that I think has to come from a policy and compliance level. There has to be a, a greater um, risk for people not doing these things before people will actually fully embed it into everything they're doing. Because if you don't do that, I mean, as I say, we know that because look at the last 10 years. I can't remember when the, um, the the latest legislation was out there, but it's been at least 10 years, I believe. I think it was 20, yeah, early 2010s. But anyway, mm-hmm. the point is, yeah, that we we need to create a scenario where it has to be on everyone's li- uh, agenda and on in the talking points and that everyone's thinking about it, much like privacy has now become something that people understand so much better like GDPR or not, people are actually talking about privacy all the time. Yeah. We need to be talking about accessibility in exactly the same way. And, and the tools that do it, not like it would be very simple. If, if the government or local authorities wanted to do it, they yeah. could easily say, right, uh, no, we're not going to give you this contract because your website's not yeah. accessible. 
Yeah, no, exactly. And I had in here, I think, you know, you've got local, regional and national government. It's not just mm -hmm. a legislation point if you're building mm -hmm. it into, you know, the services that they provide, but also the people that they work with, as, as exactly as you said. Um, industry bodies, you know, the fact that, you mm -hmm. know, that it's, it's uh, built into, for example, you know, if you've got a... Um, uh, an industry body for, for web design that, that accessibility is built in as one of the things that they, uh, you know, give access to or provide discounts on or whatever it might be in terms of training and that kind of thing. Yeah. I think there's um, education that we've talked about in terms of academia, um, further education, various other uh, places this needs to be. And then, um, and then funding bodies again, I think, uh, mm. as you say, Richard, I think the you know, a lot of a lot of change can happen through whether again that's national funding for innovation, or it's not, or it's or it's a, a voluntary sector funding for for a, for a community project. If we build these things in, not as a not as a compli not only as a compliance thing, but as a we can help you with this as well. You yeah, know, yeah. The, um, the, it might the, be far more useful. For example, often you're required to submit something like your EDNI policy. Yeah. And I think, well, actually, how much use is that? Does it ever get even read, read exactly. let alone checked? Whereas well, actually, it might be better to have on the list. Oh, we're going to do, we're going to we're going to audit your own website. Yeah. And if it doesn't come up to standard, we won't give you this contract. Yeah. Uh, I think that would be far more powerful. Um, and and to talk about in a funding application how you're going to make something, mm -hmm. how you're going to design this particular thing accessibly. Mm -hmm. I think that putting that one question in, for example, and ensuring that the people who are looking at those funding applications understand what that actually means, yeah. you would create a scenario where I think even you know without the compliance uh, bit, you would still be creating a, a much uh, an opportunity where people have a real. I think a lot, as I say, it's not that people don't want to think about this stuff. It's just that often they don't. It, then it's not necessary. It's you know I've been uh, one of my colleagues had uh, had an accident uh, last year. I've been spending a lot of time thinking about accessibility from a from a mobility perspective mm -hmm. uh, recently, in a way that I never would. Before. That lived experience suddenly you know it opens your eyes to things. Mm -hmm. And Adam reflected on this before uh, that you wouldn't you know uh, it, it 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 helps you uh, feel things that you didn't feel before. So I think it's um it's really it's really crucial. Uh, yeah, that. Um, that that, uh, that this is pointed out to people mm. and that people are, are, are told about the things that exist and where to go because it can't be put entirely on, you know, on yeah. the individual. Um, in in health and care, we're um, having discussions about um, those kind of the wider determinants of health, um, which are often things like you know poverty, housing, mm. um, employment, um, and I think this falls into that category: digital inclusion and. And what role um, anchor institutions can play? So, mm. and maybe this is, you know, if if we think of big institutions like NHS trusts or um, local authorities, universities, um, setting some kind of standard for the way that they're going to act, that they want others in the region to act, then perhaps access and inclusion. And digital inclusion is one mm. set of standards that they need to be adopting and, and promoting. I know I've done my soapbox bit on that last bit, but uh, but just to add into this, one of the reasons why we're setting up Tech for Good Northeast is that I think in this space there isn't one place to go to, right? There's not mm. there's not one, you know. There's very there's actually very few, as we talked about before, places where you can go to 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 under to understand the bigger picture, right? I think and I think that's one of the things that we would really like to be doing from a 
tech sector perspective, a voluntary sector perspective, but also a general population perspective is being able to say, if you're, you know, you're an individual and you, and you want more accessible services, this is where you could go, uh, or you want access to, to the more, uh, what we talked about before, the more t traditional digital inclusion uh, um, uh, uh, services. Um, as tech companies, this is where you can go to learn more about this, to start embedding this into your design, to learn more about inclusive design. And as voluntary sector organisations, this is where you can go to kind of get information about all of that in order to support your service users in the best way possible. Um, but again, I don't think you know this is not this is not a one solution fits all, right? This is a, this is a massive complex uh, uh, complex thing that needs mm. that needs um, it needs leadership. And, and I think from from a regional level, I think if you look at Tees Valley, they've recently put in. Um, investment into into digital inclusion, um, uh, a feasibility study around what can be done. Digital inclusion, I would hope, as North Tyne and, and and the uh, combined authority there, uh, you know, grows to cover the, the whole northeast. That they'll be doing the same, and uh, local authorities as well. I think you know, again, if 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 the if the larger infrastructures and institutions can start taking leadership over this, it will start to, I hope, um, uh, sort of trickle down into the rest mm. of society but it's uh it's it's no small no small job yeah um i i don't think i have anything to add there i think uh, you two have covered it very comprehensively <laughs> great i mean is there anything else you want to add uh, i'm going to include some links and things in the episode description but maybe if you want to share like uh how you can get in touch with like tech for good or you know the kind of work you're doing if there's anything else you want to share then yeah, well, I mean, tech, so Tech for Good Northeast, we're just in the process of, of you know, we've, we, we had our first event last week, so it's, it's early days, um, but we're really interested to hear from anyone who's got a passion for this and uh, and, and this, uh, the accessibility side, the sort of inclusive design side is is an area that I think is, is underrepresented in the digital inclusion space. So I think we're keen to try and push that up the agenda. Um, so by all means, get in touch. Uh, the web address for that is techforgoodne.org. Um, or you can drop an email through to me at hello at uh, techforgoodne.org uh, or just search for Tech for Good Northeast on Twitter or whatever and you'll find us there. Yeah, if, there's, um, if anybody wants to get in touch with me regarding the kind of um, digital inclusion and health and, and care issues, then um, contact me at richard.boggy, which is B-O-G-G-I-E, at von, V-O-N-N-E.org.uk. Um and if anybody's looking for um, some immediate kind of um, resources, I would direct you towards um, Difference Northeast um, to their their website, differencenortheast.org.uk, um, and there's some some really good training on there, which um, particularly probably for smaller organisations they might find useful as a as a starting point of getting people to a to a kind of good base level of of, of knowledge. Just, just to reiterate, so we've at Software City run a program over the last eighteen months, so a number of programs actually, um, digital pathfinders uh, and 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 others, with uh, voluntary sector organisations and businesses. And just to reiterate, the difference Northeast have been, we've sent a number of organisations there to 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 get support in this in this space. Um, but it's important to remember that it's a charity run by professionals, and that, that it's you know this is something you need to that people need to invest in, mm. not to, you know if you want to go and and, and uh, get get free help. There's tons of that on the internet, but um, but I think it, it's it is really worth investing because you know getting people who really understand accessibility needs, as we talked about before. You know, 
is 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 so it's such a, a sort of richer more meaningful and therefore higher quality uh, um, experience yeah um if if people want to um develop more on the on the practical side of things then uh as as an academic i would direct you to the previous two speakers um but if people want to <laughs> uh, if you want to talk uh more about the, the the speculative side of this or or my my research or um how uh we're trying to develop uh, tools or leverage existing data and resources to move this conversation up the agenda, um, then you can get in touch with me uh, by email. I'm sure that we can put that in the in the notes uh, rather than trying to transcribe it through audio. Mm -hmm. um, or yeah. if you uh, want to talk to me about the, the more speculative uh, side of this or um, the what theory can teach us about this or if you just want some some practical advice about these things then uh by all means get in touch but uh as as we've hopefully uh reiterated there are a great many resources about this kind of thing that are already out there um and so i would uh i would encourage people to have a look at those do a google yeah, do a Google. It's, <laughs> it's a lot out there. It's, it, if, there's, if, there's, if there's one moral to take away from this as a tech designer, um, it, 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 does, it does sound reductive, but really, honestly, Google it. Like, mm. the, the information is out there. Yeah. The things that you need to do are out there. Um, and it, it sounds scary if you don't have experience of it, but it's really, it's really not, and it, it will pay dividends in the long run. It'll make your designs better as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. Okay, well, thanks very much, Adam, Richard, and Adam. You have been listening to OpenBlab, an interaction design and human computer interaction podcast from Newcastle University. It was hosted and edited by Daniel Parry. The producer was Emily Barker, with music from Joylist and Party Avoider. It was recorded here at OpenLab in the School of Computing at Newcastle University. Thanks for listening.